We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast, where this week we're joined by Laura Mary Carter from Blood Red Shoes. I'm Peter Smith. And I'm Richard Gallagher. And we covered a whole range of topics with Laura, but of course we kicked off with how Blood Red Shoes fashioned a distinctive, but perhaps quite hard to categorise sound. We did start off a bit like that, quite sort of heavy and shouty, but I don't know, it was a natural thing. We wanted to be more pop, because for us, pop music was like almost rebelling. Whereas normally it's like the other way around. Yeah, we could make songs that sound like Sonic Youth forever, but that's not that challenging for us. What is challenging is to write a pop song. So we kind of got obsessed with that idea and we were listening to like Madonna a lot and we loved the B-52s and like that was our mission. So we started doing that more and more and I think that scene just were like, what is this that they're doing? Why are they being a pop band? And it was that kind of childish thing where they're like, you're selling out. It was like that, you know, when you're young, people are like that. And uh, and so Boring by the Sea is basically a view to those people because it's like that whole attitude is boring. Yep, there's certainly a band who weren't afraid of putting a nice melody over a rock sound. And talking about that sound, I also thought it was a nice insight from Laura on how Blood Red Shoes works as a two-piece uh, with her and Stephen Ansell, who plays the drums and challenges your face musically, you know, when you've just got a guitarist and a drummer in the band, both doing vocals, but plenty of obstacles to overcome to, to, to build a real big, loud sound. Indeed, and Laura also gave us some interesting views on the music industry as a whole. Blood Red Shoes are obviously still going strong, and as she says, they've been through a lot. So it's fascinating to hear her thoughts on everything from royalties through to how their own label, Jazz Life, is supporting young musicians. Yeah, loads in this one, including the latest on the band's upcoming sixth album as well. So if you're a big fan of the band, listen out for that news we've got um, later on in the pod. Um, so have a listen, then let us know what you think by hitting us up on our social media channels and even leave us a nice review if you liked it. So here's Laura Mary Carter from Blood Red Shoes. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're joined by Laura Carter from Blood Red Shoes. Laura, how are you? Hi, I'm, I'm well, thank you. Good, good. Thanks for coming on. No problem. We start these podcasts with a sound check, just quick, three quick questions to get us started. And we always start with, uh, whereabouts are you? Well, um, I'm actually in London right now, um, but I, I actually have, I reside in the States, um, but I came back to record an album and have been stuck ever since. <laughs> oh, no. You've been stuck here during lockdown, is that right? Yeah, um, but it's not so bad because I'm, I'm staying at my mum's. But um, but yeah, it's a bit crazy. Uh, just got to wait until it calms down over there, then I'll go back. When were you due to be back? Uh, I was due to be back in March. I can't, it was basically the week that um, the travel ban came in. No, no, um, no. was my flight back um, but yeah I, I live in LA and yeah but I, it's kind of mad because I did a huge tour at the end of the year and then I was only back home for like I don't know a month and a half or something or two months and then and now I've been here almost I don't know five months or so <laughs> so yeah it's a bit mad it's crazy but 
to be honest, how everything is right there right now, I'm kind of glad I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, second question in the sound check, Laura, is uh, what are you listening to at the moment? What bands are you into? Um, what am I listening to at the moment? Um, you know what? I'm going to quickly look at my play, my Spotify because I'm one of the, I always like people ask me these questions and I'm, my mind goes blank. Um, <laughs> Do you know what someone said to me the other day if you have a look at that on repeat function that they serve up and it, it sort of throws up the songs you've been listening to quite a lot recently and i had a look and i was like hmm yeah am i happy enough with this selection to put it on twitter and say yeah this is what i'm listening to at the moment there's some uh, some cheesy ones in there as well unfortunately <laughs> well, annoyingly i don't have like, anything that modern well it is modern but like nothing really really recent um apart from this band called the Neverly Boys, which is um, actually one of the members from uh, TV and the radio, his new band, um, which I've been listening to quite a lot. And um, oh, let me have, I've been, I always listen to a lot of the same stuff. Like I love Radiohead, listening to that recently. Um, I love Big Thief. I really love that song by Grimes, uh, We Appreciate Power. I, I've listened to that so much in the, the last year and um i like sharon van etten as well like her new stuff but yeah um i don't know i tend to just kind of get fixated on like one song and then listen to that over and over um like beck or something like that i don't know yeah. um i listen to a lot of nine inch nails as well and um depeche mode and that kind of thing cool nice selection um, and last question up in the sound check is um, the last gig that you went to before lockdown. Can you remember what the last gig you went to was? Oh my god! Um, let me think. I saw Idols in LA, but I can't remember if that was before if that was the last show I went to. Good gig. Idols, cool. Was it a good night? Yeah, it was amazing. It was really good. It was so loud, though. I think I had like <laughs> I went back thinking I'm not going to be able to hear for <laughs> for the next few months, but. Yeah, it was really good. Okay, Laura, so we'll dive on in there. So um, you're obviously one half of Blood Red Shoes along with uh, Stephen Anser on drums. So how did you guys end up working together back in 2004, I think it was? And how come you decided to sort of go down the, the two-person band route? Well, um, we met, yeah, way back in 2004 or just before that um, because we both were in previous bands. So Steve was in this, like, we were both in, like, punk bands, basically. And we ended up playing some of the same kind of squats and like we used to play like we were in the DIY kind of scene that was happening and um we'd play squats and we'd play wherever we could and we ended up just crossing paths quite a bit but I grew up in London and he was from Brighton um so it wasn't like we knew each other from that world because if he lived in London I would have known him so it was like we'd only cross paths when we were like playing shows or something and um and I don't know what it was it was just I just had this weird feeling that I could play music with him because with my old band, I think I was the only one taking it very seriously. And um, they wanted to do like, they wanted to go to college and do all this stuff. Whereas I was like, no, I want to rehearse like all the time. <laughs> and I don't think people could take that. And I thought he was the only person I met that seemed to have that drive. Of all the people I'd met in music, I thought, I don't know, I just thought, I just felt like I just had a feeling that I could make music with him. But I didn't really like him. Um, <laughs> I really did not get on with him. We still don't always get on. But 
uh, we're just very different people, but it was just more of a musical connection. So um, I, I read somewhere, like someone told me or something, because it was back before I had like, I mean, I didn't have the internet or a computer until very late, but I somehow found out that his band had um, broken up and I got hold of him and insensitively, like straight away, it was like, do you want to have a jam? So he had a studio, a rehearsal space in Brighton. So he said, come down to Brighton and we'll do, we'll just like give it a go. So I assumed that he was going to play guitar as well because he was a guitar player in his old band and a singer. Um, but he got on drums and I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I play guitar and then he started singing and I was like, okay, that makes sense because he sang in his other bands. But I never really thought about that concept. I mean, I was really, I'm a bit, I'm a bit younger than him anyway, but I was quite young. So I thought a drummer singing. Okay. <laughs> but I just went with it and then we both were singing. And then, um, a friend of, I don't know, a friend of his or something, I heard us playing just that one first ever jam and, um, offered us a show at the free bar, which was kind of the cool place at the time in Brighton, um, venue. And we said, should we do it? We were like, okay, we've got no songs. <laughs> we've got no name and we haven't got any members. I always thought that we would eventually get a bass player or eventually be more conventional kind of lineup. But because this gig was like in a week, we were like, okay, let's write three songs really quick. And we barely had any words to them or anything. And we were like, let's just do it. And it was support for someone. And so we had to think of a name really quick. So we thought of Blubber Shoes and then we did the show and we just, every, like loads of people I meet now, still a couple of people like went to that show. I've, it's amazing how many times I've met someone that's like, I was at your first ever show. I'm like, what? I, I swear there wasn't that many people there. <laughs> um, we just, I guess it's something resonated with people because I think we just, I, I don't know what it was, pure energy or something and we got offered another show. So we just kept going and we never bothered to get anyone else. We were like, well, people seem to like it like this. So let's just stay like that. And it wasn't, cause people often ask like, oh, were you influenced by other two piece bands at the time it was White Stripes. Really it was one of the only, there wasn't that many two piece bands. And um, we were just like, no, not at all. We always wanted to sound like a bigger band as well. We never wanted to sound minimal. That was never our like goal. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Well, partly, yeah, as you say, how that combination just came together and you know seemed to click. You know, maybe rushed a little bit at the start, but it all worked out. Um, but yeah, we we're going to say, well, yeah, obviously, White Stripes, yeah, obviously had loads of successes as as a twosome. But as you say, it's unusual. So tell us a little bit more about how it works musically. You know, without that traditional bass player or without an additional guitarist, how, how does that sort of affect what you can do on stage or or how you put songs together when you're writing them? Um, I think, yeah, it was always like, it, 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 I mean, it gave us more room in a way. So in, for me, I learned, I've kind of learned guitar in this band because I, I was, I'm self-taught anyway, but I knew how to play guitar, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say particularly like, um, established like guitar player by any means. So we learned to play together really. And him with drums as well, he wasn't a drummer. So he just decided he wanted to play drums in this band. And so we kind of 
learnt together and in that and, and in that way that's all we know is be able to be like playing in a two piece really um so he had more room to do more like showy off stuff <laughs> and i had more room to sort of also play the guitar a bit like if anyone knows my guitar playing a lot of the stuff i write is i write a bass line on the top like i write a bass line on top of an other melody which I guess a lot of two-piece bands do as well now. Like, it's it's trying to fill the sound. So it was, it was a lot of like, just kind of working together to sort of fill the sound and just do what felt right. And also the two voices kind of help with the, with that to fill the gaps. Um, it it I don't know. It was just a kind of instinctual thing. But writing music, I mean, it, it's it's not that different. It's just that you have to be a bit more creative in terms of the melody, like especially my guitar, like I have to be quite creative in how I write stuff. Um, but as time has gone on and like our last album, our, our last album, um, we had like, we, we had full, full band. So that was us playing everything. Um, because now as 16 years have gone, like we can, we're able to do that. We can play whatever instruments. And then we, we got some session music, musicians in for the first time in our career um, for this last record to help us play it. Just because we we never wanted to just be very like stuck in our ways. We always want to progress. And we've done the two-piece thing forever. We're still a two-piece, but and it's we still write like that. But to be able to make a sort of different sounding record, we needed to add extra layers. And so we wanted to do that live exactly like the record to do it justice because there's only so much pedals that I can have and <laughs> the last record before that was like I was just pushing it I was like I can't do it physically anymore <laughs> just, <laughs> it's just not gonna work to kind of give like do the record justice so yeah we had some session people in well mostly they were just friends of ours at play but um so yeah that was also a different whole different thing because there was moments then that I didn't have to play all the time because that's the other thing being a two-piece is that there isn't any time for gaps it's not like it's not like we can just sort of you know how like in a full band you know the bass can keep going and I yeah. can stop doing that. it's not it wasn't like that so never had like a moment just to sing or just to stop and and that was actually quite strange at first for me to have gaps I didn't really know what to do with myself um to be able to just stop playing for a minute and then sing but I've been I've got really into singing in the last few years and my voice is sort of I've I've learned how I'm I feel like that's the instrument I've progressed in the most is my voice um and it and it's kind of yeah I'm really that's the thing that really sort of um used to like I still love guitar but I think that's the thing I'm really experimenting with at the moment is my voice cool I just still not finding on that sort of um being in a two-piece I guess by having those session musicians in now, it gives you a bit of relief in terms of, it must be quite intense, isn't it? Being with the same person all the time, being on tour with the same person, being on stage, writing songs. You know, you already mentioned how you guys can sometimes rub each other up the wrong way, perhaps. Um, so uh, someone else to chat to, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I feel like everything happens for a reason and, and it was meant to be just us two. And it, and it also is quite strange having people as well because we're so used to just being doing things our way. It was actually probably quite hard for other people coming into that. But I think as we went on, it was nice to be able to just 
yeah it sort of takes away any kind of tension and it and it and yeah and it means that we can kind of well we actually had a female bass player so for me personally it's for the first time we've had like a female on tour so that was really nice that changed a lot of the vibe of touring because it can get quite macho (laughs) (laughs) the crew and everything and so that was nice but yeah yeah it's been it's a wild been a wild ride should we say (laughs) (laughs) and um you you moved down to to brighton as that sort of your your base uh starting out and uh we actually spoke to uh, Rose from the Pipettes last week, obviously quite a different group uh, to Blood Red Shoes musically, but uh, she spoke about that thriving Brighton scene in, in the 2000s, you know, working alongside the likes of uh, you know, British Sea Power and Electric Soft Parade. Um, so being around that kind of time and that kind of location, what, what were your memories of, of the scene in Brighton at that time? Yeah, it was, it was exciting because obviously I didn't, I wasn't really I wasn't I wasn't living in Brighton originally when the band started it was only when I just kept having to go there I was like I might as well move there so I moved there um and it was really a cool time because everyone everyone was like different kind of genre music it didn't feel like there was loads of one sound everyone was really it was eclectic like it was there was just so much stuff there was like bat for lashes there was like um trying to think there was I don't know there was it felt like everywhere you'd walk there was someone that you knew in a band and everyone was quite inclusive and helped each other and I don't know it was a really good feeling um and there was a lot more venues then I think a lot of shut down now but just felt like something was happening and you could actually just like keep playing and kind of get like a following quite easily I don't know it just it had just like this nice feeling and it still is when we play in Brighton it still feels like coming home or something even though I I left there a long time ago but Steve still lives there but I don't know it's just got this nice feeling but that time it was exciting um oh yeah metronomy was that Joey was living there um but yeah I don't know I wouldn't change it for the world like that time is really cool and then yeah really 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 vibrant i thought at the time and uh just wondered how that sort of uh impacted that that's that song name it's getting boring by the sea if it was a uh, such a vibrant scene uh, <laughs> was that a, a different a different outlook on it um well i think that was because we came from the punk doi world um and when we started when we started the band everyone expected us to do that again that we would because we were both from punk bands that like more sort of sort of really uh like we we did start off a bit like that quite sort of heavy and shouty but we progressively just like i don't know it was a natural thing we wanted to be more pop because for us pop music was like almost rebelling whereas normally it's like the other way around but for us it was like it's yeah we could make songs that sound like sonic youth forever but that's not that challenging for us what is challenging is to write a pop song so we kind of got obsessed with that idea and we were listening to like Madonna a lot and we love the B-52s and like we just kind of, yeah, that was our that was our mission. So we started doing that more and more and I think that scene just were like, what is this that they're doing? Why are they being a pop band? And it was that kind of childish thing where they're like, you're selling out. It was like that, you know, when you're young, people are like that. And uh, and so Boring by the Sea is basically a fuck you to those people. 
because it's like that whole attitude is boring yeah you know like and so we wrote the most poppy song yet and that was the whole that was the whole story behind it all right uh, we talked a little bit about that brighton scene we saw you guys perform at the concord too i think it was around 2007 um yeah. it's on one of those enemy new music tours with the rumble strips i don't know if you uh remember back then to those sort of shows um but generally what were your memories of the live shows you know that was sort of just a year or so before the debut box of secrets came out so you know as you found yourself as a live band how exciting was that to start performing on those bigger and bigger stages and um, as you say start building a bit of a following it was it was wild i mean we were <laughs> drunk like 24 hours a day most of the time i think <laughs> like i think i came back with like serious kidney infection because we just nuts but it was the most fun ever it was it was it that whole time was so fun and i think we were just so excited all the time and it was like a whole new world from what we were used to and like that again that scene that happened it was fun it was like you felt like you know you could be do really well as like an indie band then um and you could be in the charts and stuff. It was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. And um, yeah, we started playing everywhere and it was, it was nuts. I mean, we were playing in Japan all the time. A lot of the time now I think back and I was like definitely thrown in a world as a teenager, female teenager that was, I was not prepared for. Um, especially the music industry was, it's not so, what's the word? Uh, um, I don't know, it just people got away with a lot of things back then. And it was, yeah, thinking back to that sort of side of it is mad, but it was also really exciting. And I remember like we played Brixton Academy for the first time. And the reason why we played it was because this agent wanted to take us on and stuff. And we said, well, you need to get us a gig at Brixton Academy then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was with that band Panic at the Disco. I don't even know what genre of music that is, but we were like, okay, it's not our ideal band, but yeah, right, we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> we were so like excited and we had this um, shitty old van that was like, you had to push start every time it went, it was orange. And we just loaded in all our mates and we were like, we're going to Brixton. And um, the night before we were making a banner because we were like, when you play those big shows, you have to have a banner. Oh yeah, yeah. And. Uh, and we were like, okay, so I was like up all night spray painting this banner, thinking it was huge. And then when we got there, they were like, we, they pulled it out and they were like, they had to get two little poles to like come <laughs> behind us. So, so small in comparison to the stage, we were like, oh. Um, and yeah, and it was like our 18 year old mate was doing sound. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so God knows what we sounded like a lot of that, a lot of that era. I'm. I think we had a lot of enthusiasm, but not necessarily quality control in our sound or anything like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a cool time. It was exciting, and I have a lot of like fond memories from it. Yeah, and things really built from there, didn't they? And then you obviously uh, headed into recording the debut album. So, can you tell us a bit about that process and and how? Uh, how that felt as a, as a duo sort of building that following and all of a sudden actually putting down some, some album tracks in the studio. Yeah. Again, I felt really out of my depth. 
um, I'd never made an album before. I'd always made in my old band. It was just like EPs or singles. And up until that point, we'd we'd released loads of seven inches. And I remember I was just really didn't want to make an album. And I think my, we had managers then, and they were like, "Laura, you have you have to make an album. Like, you, you can't just release seven inches forever." And I was like, "Why not?" And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think I was a bit scared, or I don't know what I was, but I just thought, "Oh, it just seemed like." Why would I want to make an album? But anyway, we went to um, Wales to make it with Mike Crossy, who we ended up making three records with. Um, and yeah, it was we were just like locked away in this like it was it, it was it's not Rockfield, it was um, the other one, uh, Mono Valley, I think where Oasis made a lot of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, we were just sort of in this Welsh town and just locked away from everything. And I think. I think it was fun. I think it was a whole new experience. But when I listen back to that record, it's like, what were we on? It's so fast. I can't even, I mean, I've played fast. I can't play that fast now. (laughs) What the hell? And we thought that was slow. Um, (laughs) But yeah, we were just like, I don't know, on some sort of, we were like on batteries or something. But yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. I think it was all just sort of, for me, I think Steve was more prepared because his band had done more stuff um, before. But for me, I just felt like, what's going on? Like, it did, even though we'd been playing for so long, it sort of went from that to sort of that in quite a short space of time. Like, next thing we knew, we were, we were making a record and had a lot of expectation on this record. Um, but then it got leaked like six months before it came out because those were the days when yeah. that happened i remember being really bummed about that um and i remember doing the artwork as well which took me forever and i just was like completely just going loony over making this artwork so i did no idea what to do <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah yeah i can imagine that that you know feeling like a real blow um when you're spending so t- so much time sort of crafting something and wanting to li- deliver it in a certain way for it almost just to you know sneak out, you know, yeah. perhaps even without the fanfare that you wanted to, it to to land with. And as you say, all the artwork and things that go with, go along with, you know, don't really think about it these days. But the artwork that goes along with buying a CD and buying an album or a piece of vinyl that you can treasure as much as the music or while you listen to the music. So it's a shame yeah. not to get that full experience, especially for a debut album. Yeah, and I think that was for me like the big thing because I spent so much of my youth just obsessing over people's artwork because that was like how we learned about things like or you know books and like music books and like I just and I'd look in the artwork of like all my favorite bands and just like have this sort of um imaginary like imagine what they were like and the whole thing because it just wasn't yeah I didn't have the internet or anything so I just I felt like it was a really important part of the record so yeah for me it was disappointing I think more than so than Steve I think Steve was not too, too disappointed about it. He was just like, oh, well, it's fine. But for me, I took it quite bad. <laughs> now, obviously, that was sort of, you know, what, 15 years ago or so. But, you know, if you look at music now, it is, you know, you know, we talk about Spotify at the start of the show. It's all, you know, people mainly stream stuff rather than buying those, those products like that. I noticed you got that broken record hashtag on, on the band's Twitter profile. Um, so, you know, what are your sort of views on, how the industry has changed obviously from someone who 
obviously took a lot of care in, in those early days or you've done all the artwork haven't you for the band so took a lot of care about what that music looked like and how it was presented to you know where we are now where you know people will just stream stuff rather than actually have that physical um, item in their house you know uh, even though like that was disappointing that um, it got leaked and stuff now that streaming is just like a normal normal thing I don't actually have a problem with streaming at all I think I think I got over that area. I think if people really want the vinyl, they'll buy the vinyl. People love vinyl now, which is cool. Vinyl sales are going up. But um, I don't have a problem with streaming. I, I, I stream myself. Um, and I think it's a good way for music to sometimes get out there as well. Like if you're at work and someone's put on like a list or something, you know, like there's ways that you can get on playlists and stuff like that. Um, you know, obviously I'd prefer if it was the way it was before, but it's just not, and, you know, I accept that, and I, yeah, I don't actually have a problem with it. What I do have a problem with is the streaming, well, the major labels, really, because they own, they own Spotify, anyway, they own a huge share of Spotify. It's more about how now the artists are not paid what they're due at all, I mean, and also just how the audience is being treated, because people are paying like 9.99 for Spotify subscription um, but they think that that is going to the artists that they're listening to or it's not it, everything goes into one big pot and it's distributed out to the biggest artists like um, Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift and then it kind of gets divvied down it, it's basically controlled by the major labels whether you're on a major label or not and we're getting like pennies for thousands of plays. It's accounted for really badly. We cannot look and see what the accounting is. There's no proper system. And it's just like, especially now with Corona, like we don't have live, that was our main living. And then you see how much the labels are making. They make 1 million pounds per hour on that alone, on streaming alone, on on Spotify and then there's all the other ones um, and yet we're you know I think I read somewhere where like Ed Sheeran I think he got like five pounds once for like I don't know how many thousands of plays it's it it's actually shocking when you look at mm. how much you know and, and labels are, are actually have more money now than they ever had because they don't have to do any work anymore because they don't actually even have to physically make the record anymore because it's going up and on streaming and they're literally just taking money and you, and now they don't even do the marketing because that the bands have to do that because you're it's your social media it's like you have to be everything now and it makes me sad for younger bands because it's like how are they ever gonna unless you're a rich kid how are you ever gonna kind of make this like how no one's gonna want to do it as a as a career anymore it's just sort of again it's like don't know it just feels like it's limiting people and yeah it's just shocking I mean we've all had to get a job we all have had jobs you would be surprised how many bands that you think are really successful have day jobs it's and it's and I think it's just unfair because they are in, like the money is there it's just about how they're distributing it and and it's like again the musicians are the ones that suffer because we just always are I mean, everyone else is making money off of us, but we're always the last people to be paid. Yeah. 
they're really tough to to earn a living through it you know especially starting out these days and especially in the current climate of course where you know live shows are probably where the majority of your money comes from and at the moment obviously you can't even do that so uh yeah really tough for for, for, for bands to, to actually put all their efforts into their music because there's just a uh, very little money coming out of it now yeah and and you know there is that attitude it's like well it's not about the money and and to be honest most of the time it's not if because you're a musician and it's like especially like from my own experience like i don't that's all i it's like a need I have to do, whether I like it or not. <laughs> I have to do that. Um, but, but at the same time, like, and it, and we, and it's like you kind of get made to feel like you should just be. I think this is the way the industry works. They they make you sort of feel like, well, you just should be grateful that we even care about your music, or you should just be grateful that, you know, you're doing your life passion, and it doesn't matter that you're 33 and you have to sleep on a couch. Like, this is the attitude that is like constantly drilled into us and there are elements yeah i it isn't about the money but when but then it's like if it's your full-time thing and you can't live it, it, it you know you have to get paid for what you're also doing i mean people are enjoying music imagine the world without music imagine you know you just watch tv and there's music you we take it for granted in that sense and all it is is really asking what we're owed it's not like that's all it is. It's like yeah. most people get paid for what they do. So that's what I have a problem with. And that's what I think the industry needs to fix because until bands actually stand up and say something, which often we don't because we're worried that it will hinder our career, which it can. Um, but I just think until we all just go, hang on a minute, like this is getting ridiculous now. We have to do something about it we need to be paid properly and we need to see the account, see what, you know, is actually going on. We were just in the dark. Um, and so, yeah, until that happens, I don't know. It's, it's a hard one because it's, it's yeah. very confusing. I mean, there's lots of change and there's, there's lots of confusing things that happen. But th what I always think is the percentages of what people get, the music industry hasn't changed in all these years that music basically has been a business. But the world has changed, the industry has changed, but that hasn't. And it's like, we're earning less money in general, but the percentages that everyone's getting is the same. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so yes, I feel like that is definitely something that I have started talking about more. And yeah, a lot of people don't like that I talk about it, but I don't have anything to lose because I honestly, I just don't, I just, I have that, I think that's from being around for a long time because I just think anything that could ever happen that could happen to a band has happened to our band and we're still here. So they ain't going to make or break me. So I will speak mm -hmm. out if it's anything for the younger generation of bands, try and fix it for them. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that feel the same. Yeah, we um, spoke to Alfie Jackson from the Holloways on one of the earlier pods, and I know he's a big advocate for this, but as you say, it, it's going to take a lot of bands coming together, a lot of musicians coming together and standing together, because as you say, it's a very important um, issue um, for bands like yourselves now, but also, as we said, for the bands coming up. Yeah. Okay, well, that's part one of the show, and in part two, we'll talk to Laura more about the Blood Red Shoes story and um, how, despite that leak of the first album, it actually led to them playing some big festivals and kicking on for album number two.
I'm Laura Mary from Blubber Shoes, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we're joined by Laura Mary Carter, singer and guitarist in Blood Red Shoes. So we've just been talking about the, the changes in the music industry and, and how the leaking of the first album uh, felt a little bit uh, wrong at the time. But the rights or wrongs of it, you know, it took your music to the audience and, and led to you playing some pretty big festivals like Glastonbury in 2008. So tell us about that time once the album was out there and, and how it affected you going into this, writing the second album. Um, yeah, so after the first album was released, um, yeah, we ended up yeah touring loads, loads. And then I think we were still touring when they were like, okay, our manager and stuff were like, okay, you need to make album two. And album two, notoriously, is a hard record. <laughs> um, our first album did well, so it was like, okay, you need to you need to come up with something. You, want, you need to come up with something good here. Um, and so... I think what we felt on the first record was that it didn't what we sound like live is wasn't really it didn't come across in the first record so we wanted to sound more like we sound live on this on the second record and we worked with mike again who worked on blocks of secrets um but we said look we want to do it more like a bit more raw and stuff and i think we did we did it on tape we did it um or we at least ran it through um old like tape to make it sound more organic and sound like us, I guess. Um, and so that was like our biggest aim with it. Uh, and yeah, we were writing the songs. We were still writing the songs when we went into the studio. Um, but at the time we were on uh, a major label. So we were on Mercury Records. Um, and they they knew that we were going in with Mike and everything. And we went into the studio and then like halfway through, they said, um, we need to pull you out of the studio. We need you to come in for a meeting. We've heard some of the demos. So we're like, all right. So we had to leave where we were doing it in Liverpool, go and have this meeting. And the meeting was the label was saying that um, he heard the songs and they're not popping off and they aren't going to get on the radio. And we've been lazy going in with the same producer, even though they actually suggested that. Um, and like we need they need to hear a radio hit so we were like okay um well we didn't just say okay we <laughs> we completely annihilated this guy but we were like all right okay so we um so we left we didn't actually want to be on that label anyway really we just we it was a long story how we ended up with them but we were like okay and that's like a challenge for us they were like, all right so you don't think they're going to be on the radio or whatever but we went back and we were like, okay, let's record like seven minutes of noise and just send it to them because <laughs> we were just pissed off. <laughs> so we recorded loads of noise, sent it to them and they were obviously like, what the hell is this? And they were like, right, we can't work with you anymore. So we were like, okay, cool. So our manager at the time was like, all right, well, you can't just let the band, you can't just like drop the band during their album. You're going to have to pay them because, pay them off because you, you put them in to make the record. You can't leave them with the bill. So they ended up having to give us the money that we then paid for the record, which actually meant that we owned a second record. Um, so we basically, yeah, we dropped during that uh, second album. And then all the songs that were on the demos we made 
and then they all got on Radio 1. I think they got like the more radio plays than we'd ever had, so that was like an awesome fuck you to that guy. Um, and we went back to our original label, which was V2. And so, yeah, it was a whole roller coaster making second album. But I really, I think the second album kind of defined our band in a way because, not defined, I don't know what the word is, like, it just, for me, like, we still play a lot of songs on that record, but it, it felt more like us. Um, like, we'd settled in a little bit to what our sound was going to be. And I think a lot of people uh, were in, like really liked the sound of that record, and a lot of bands went to Mike after that. Um, but, yeah, uh, it was it was cool. And, and then I felt that we sort of went back to our more grungy kind of roots that we had. And, yeah, it just felt more like us. We kind of were in that, in like... We were kind of pushed into that indie, like, enemy world for the first record. So it was, like, on the verge of that. But we were never really that band. We've always been the band that no one really understands what we are. <laughs> so we kind of were like, okay, well, let's make it sound more like what we are live, which I think it ended up being more like that. Um, but, yeah, I think the second album actually went better than we thought because could have been the sort of kiss of death which was happening a lot of the band to a lot of the bands at that time um so many bands of that era ended up being dropped and then never doing anything else um so yeah we made it through so i suppose i see it as kind of a triumphant second album interesting to hear that sort of um tension i guess perhaps with the record company because um by the fourth album you ended up putting that out on your own label didn't you um jazz life um, self-produced and everything so um, tell us a little bit about that progression through the third album as well but how come you ended up you know basically doing things your own way come album number four um so basically yeah we then we did the third album which the third album to be honest I thought was a really good album but I don't it it sort of it did again it did all right but it like didn't get as much attention as I think we were hoping for because I think we really had sort of progressed our sound by then but it was like as the industry is it was like not as exciting anymore because we're not the young like we're not the, the only two-piece band around anymore <laughs> um but so then we were like okay let's make a fourth record but like f like let's just not go and do it how we've done it before let's just do it ourselves because we're always fighting anyway to do it like how we wanted to because we are control freaks so we um, we went to Berlin and just rented a, literally a, just like a big room, um, industrial kind of space, and we just made a record and no one came. I think we could have had done with someone coming <laughs> and been like, <laughs> say something about the songs, but no one did. They just left us to our own devices and we made that record, which, yeah, was also a big learning curve for us to produce it ourselves completely. Um, and after that, we were like, we're never doing that again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, but we did it. Um, we did it. And um, no, we might end up doing it. Well, I don't know from who who knows what the future is. But but yeah, we were like, okay, we've done that now. Um, and I think we just started Jazz Life ourselves because originally Jazz Life was just to help other bands, um, which we still put out other bands. And it was a bit like when we started, we did all those seven inches I was talking about before. 
it was all bedroom labels that did that and that really helped our career and we thought no there's no labels that really do that anymore where they're like actually helping bands like put out songs without these like huge contracts or basically being screwed over we were we wanted to do it purely out of being music lovers um and so that's how we started jazz life but then we were like why don't we just put it out as jazz life and we had um but it was like a subsidiary of a label that we kind of did it in combination with the label because our stuff's more international so even though it was our label we had um them behind it and and then the records that we did our last record we purely did ourselves which was a lot of work but we had got that produced so i don't know it's it's been just it's like everything we do is just like learning all the time but you then i think early days like i just didn't really know how anything really worked at all I had no idea but now it feels like we just try stuff out and we manage to make it work <laughs> no matter what we just it just has to so we make stuff work but um i'll yeah our, so our fourth record yeah we reproduced ourselves it was put out as jazz life but it was under um again v2 that had put out the third and second record how is it running your own label then and, and uh, sort of what are the sort of unexpected challenges the positives is is there that side of things as well where you kind of your own bosses in, in in that sense in terms of when you put out your own music yeah i mean i mean so we put out a lot of seven in, we don't we've never put out an actual um album of anyone else we put out eps and seven inches and singles digital singles but um and that was really fun and having to like try and get people to listen to people's music and picking music that we liked that was you know we just wanted to help the bands or whatever or just stuff that we love and that was cool but then when it came to doing our own stuff it's like it is quite hard because then you're in charge and sometimes you don't want to be the face of your own band you know you don't want to be the one pushing to get radio or pushing it, it can be quite hard and I think on our last record Get Tragic it, we we didn't want to actually do it that way but we had to do it that way otherwise that record would never have come out because of loads of other industry bullshit but so we just had to put it out and we did it ourselves and we did everything ourselves on jazz on our sorry get tragic our last album we did absolutely everything to the point where our music was suffering in terms of playing live because we weren't we didn't even we by the time we were rehearsing we were just like oh my god it was so much work so i know that our next record we're not going to do it like that um but we had to do it like that and it is cool that we've done it again because one now we even know even more about how it all works um but i've taken a kind of back step from the from jazz life since that just because i was like oh my god i just need to like chill out with that so steve's been putting out some uh, music that he's actually been producing he's been putting stuff out on jazz life um but once stuff's back up and running with shows then i'll actually i think it's a good time to go out and find some bands that i like again and put them out um but yeah it's easy to just like put out a random single of ours like we we you know it's a good way of just like instantly doing something um but yeah i i don't think i want to do that again with the whole album <laughs> it's too much too much pressure and like 
just constant stress. I like the way that you, you know, you keep yourself busy, you guys, don't you? It's because, you know, obviously the, the labels and things like that, but you've had, you know, side projects and some solo stuff as well thrown in. So, um, yeah, I know you said about that sort of learning curve that you guys have been on since, since the start, but you certainly keep adding more and more things to the pile and exploring new avenues and new areas, don't you? Yeah, I mean, that is what keeps it interesting. Um, I think... I think after that whole experience of putting out the record and it being like really intense and it was actually, it was a great achievement to have done it. And actually, it, you know, because we had been away for a long time, so it was really hard to get people to like notice us again. And I think we did a good job and it was, once we got on tour, like I felt happy, like we, we did it. And, um, but like now we're concentrating on being creative because I think that sometimes when you're doing all that kind of stuff, the thing that you really love is getting a bit lost so um since then we've both been doing like independently like lots of different creative side projects and just whatever we can to do <laughs> to keep it interesting and obviously now right now we're also doing it's given us time to sort of yeah be be creative again and not be like on the road or whatever um, so obviously talk about being creative and uh, things like that. So album number six, where are we up to? What's what's going on? When we when can we get some new Blood Red Shoes music? Oh, well, yeah, it's a shame that we were hoping that it would come out this year because we've already we made it the, early this year. Um, but obviously that's not going to happen. So it'll be next year. Um, but yeah, I don't know when we're in the dark. We're as in the dark as anyone else. Um, I have no idea, but. It's a good, it's my, it's our best record. I know everyone says that about the latest record, but I really think it is. Um, and we made it with Tom Delgetti, who is known from, he made the last two Pixies records and he's on Ramstein's last record, he's the ghost. Um, yeah, and he's quite known for like getting a rock sound. So it is more, our last record, Get Tragic, was, um, was, not as guitar-y um, and this is a bit more guitar-y but it's got the same element of like we have it's like a full sound it's it's a full band once again um but yeah it was it was like actually didn't take us that long to write it we wrote it in LA uh, in a month and then we came straight away and recorded it in um Eastbourne <laughs> excellent yeah excellent yeah we were um me and Rich were at Brighton Uni um but because we were both on the sports campus, we were based at Eastbourne, so we know that place very well. So whereabouts was it recorded? In, in a place called Zoo Zoo Studios. Right. Um, okay. It's not that far from the main town. It's like, yeah, right on the sea. It's really. It, I like Eastbourne. I had ever spent any time there, but I actually really liked it. I thought it yeah. was. Uh, it was nice. The seafront's nice. Yeah, it's got yeah, a bad so bad reputation, hasn't it, Rich? It's just an old yes. fogies place, but there's a. Uh, there's a few nice bars you can find down there. Yeah, pl pl plenty of life if, you, if you're if you looking for it. <laughs> I like the old Fergie's vibe because there's some cool, like, I don't know, I see it as an individual, like, photography sense. I was like, I want to come back with a camera and go into these cafes <laughs> take candid shots of everyone. <laughs> Just in the and that could potentially be uh, the album cover for album number six, right? There you go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> artwork sorted yeah <laughs> excellent all right laura thanks very much for your time today we're going to wrap things up with the encore now if that's all right so um first question in the encore is 
Can you choose between LA or Brighton? Where's your favourite place to live? Oh, I mean, LA. (laughs) 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 I mean, only because that, for now, I mean, at the time, Brighton was the best place. But I always get to go to Brighton because my sister lives there and Steve is there. So I feel like, yeah, I was going to get to go there anyway. So LA, I don't always get to go to. So for the time being, LA is my favourite place. (laughs) Easy choice. Uh, the second question is, what's the favourite gig that you've done um, with Blood Red Shoes? Can, is there a standout show? We did. We played one in Hamburg this last year uh, on our headline tour. And it was probably the most fun show I've ever played. And I felt like sometimes on tour when everything just clicks and you're like even thinking about what you're doing and it just comes natural and everything works and you're just in the moment. Um, we had that, and this, I've forgotten the name of the venue now. Terrible with names. Um, but it was in Hamburg on our tour in November. That was one of my, that was probably my favourite. Very cool. All right, and last, last question of the podcast, Laura, is can you pick out the song you're proudest of? I think I've got two. One is um, Silence and the Drones on our third record. And I think... I say that because I just feel like that song came from nowhere. It just came out in like 10 minutes. And I feel like it's got a lot of um, emotion and like feeling. It just, it just like, yeah, it just came from nowhere. It felt like the song wrote itself. So I feel quite proud of that one because it was just like this sort of spark moment. And um, a lot of people have said to me that that song like helped them through things and a lot of people say that to us like about lyrics and stuff and that one always sticks out of people saying that they love that one um and the other one would be uh god complex which is not on a record but it was like a a song we just put out in between uh album four and five and again that one just kind of came like that and even though it's like i don't know it just it just felt a really natural song and i just i think that's like one of my favorite songs that we have so that'll be nice excellent Laura nice one thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today it's been really good fun chatting about the Blood Red Shoes story with you oh thank you thanks for having me